0: Welcome to LaGrave CRC's sermon podcast. This Sunday, Reverend Peter Yonker will go deep into the Holy Mysteries of Romans 9, 6 through 24. Our Bible reading tonight, as promised, comes from Romans chapter nine. I will read Romans nine, starting at verse one, and going all the way through verse 24. And I will do that eventually. Uh, Tonight, please keep your Bibles open, have them close at hand. Uh, I'm going to go back and forth. It'll be more expository. I'll read bit by bit. And um, for those of you who weren't here uh, a week ago Sunday, Sunday morning, and didn't hear the sermon, this is intended as an expansion of that morning sermon. But if you weren't here, or if you've forgotten it already, um, th- th- there is enough in here, I think, that'll bring you up to speed. So let's start, and let's just begin by reading the first five verses of Romans chapter 9. Paul says, I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself was cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption to sonship, there's the divine glory and the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, the promises. There's are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. I think it's pretty clear from these opening verses. The sense you get at things is that Paul is... Um, that that Paul's struggles, what Paul is about to write in chapter 9, and indeed everything he's going to write in chapters 9 through 11, is a deeply personal struggle, okay? This comes out of deep personal pain for Paul. This is not abstract theology. He will get into abstract theology, but it's abstract theology all driven by a very personal feeling. And that personal feeling is what is happening to my brothers and sisters, the Jews? The Messiah has come, and only a few of them have accepted this Messiah. The vast majority of them have not accepted and are walking away. And for Paul, this is personal, because I'm sure that many of those who are walking away are people to whom he is close. Old friends, neighbors, who knows, maybe parents, maybe brothers and sisters, guys he went to university with to study being a Pharisee, all of them, rejecting the Messiah that he loves so deeply. And this is so painful to Paul, you heard him say, that he would give up his own salvation. I would let myself be cut off from Christ if somehow they could be brought in. Deep personal pain. And I would wager that anyone here who's a parent, who has a child who's walked away from faith, can sympathize a little bit with that feeling Paul has. I would give anything for my child to come back. That's the feeling that Paul has about the subjects that he's going to talk about and the things we're going to talk about tonight. And, and throughout 9 through 11, we'll read 9. I'll read a little bit of 11 later. That's the issue he's dealing with. Why aren't the Jews coming to Jesus? Let's keep reading, starting at verse 6, and I'm going to go through 6 through 18. He starts to answer his question it's not as though God's word had failed for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children on the contrary it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned in other words it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring For this is how the promise was stated, at the appointed time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. And not only that, uh, Rebecca's children were conceived at the same time by our father, Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger just as it just as it is written Jacob I loved but Esau I hated what then shall we say is God unjust not at all for he says to Moses I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion upon whom I have compassion it does not depend therefore on human desire or effort but on God's mercy for scripture says to Pharaoh I raised you up for this very purpose that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in the earth. Therefore God has mercy upon whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. It is not as though God's word has failed. So right from the very beginning, Paul's argument is God's promises still stand. This is still working. The covenant is still in place. And then he sort of launches into an explanation of how that could possibly be so. And the first thing he says is, not all Israel is Israel, which is a very strange thing to say. And what he means by that is that um, to be part of the promise has never been about being from blood descent. You could define Israel by blood descent, but that's not how the children of the promise are viewed. They're defined by the promise. They're the ones chosen to bear God's purpose to lead towards the Messiah. Just having Abraham's genetic material does not make you a child of the promise. It may make you a Jew, it doesn't make you a child of the promise. Not all Israel is Israel. And then he gives examples, right? Isaac is a child of the promise, Ishmael has Abraham's genetic material, but he's not. Jacob is a child of the promise, Esau has Abram's genetic material, but he's not a child of the promise. This is the way it's worked in the past, says Paul, so why should it surprise us now that a whole group of people who also are genetically Jews should now, by God's sovereign purpose, also not be considered children of the promise? And besides, he says, that's how we see God working through history. He hardens whom he wants to harden and has mercy upon whom he wants to have mercy. Just look at Pharaoh. Now, there are a couple of levels in which that argument and Paul's words are really controversial and controversial in a really interesting way here. Think of who Paul is comparing Israelites to, okay? In this passage, Paul compares the people of Israel to Ishmael, Esau, and Pharaoh. Israel, you are like Ishmael, Esau, and Pharaoh. That is such a complete reverse from the way Israel would have been thinking about it. When they read the old stories of who did they identify with? Jacob, Isaac, and certainly not with Pharaoh, but with the oppressed people of Egypt. Paul is turning that on its head. He's saying, No, Israel, you, you know you're, you're like Esau, Ishmael. And Pharaoh. Now you know that when Paul went out to speak the gospel of Christ, he went to synagogues and often preached first there. And sometimes they did not receive him well. Sometimes they threw stones at him afterwards. If you think about this message, you can understand why maybe that's so. If they were being compared to to Ishmael and Esau, that was such a turn on the head of what they were used to. Okay, that's one thing. And the second thing about what Paul says so far is that it raises some obvious questions about fairness. So wait a minute, Paul. You're saying that the only reason that my friends, the people I love, my fellow Jews aren't following is because they were not chosen and God has chosen to harden their hearts? Is God's choice and hardening that caused this situation? Well, how can they be blamed? How can you hold them accountable when God is the one who pushed them aside and hardened them? That second question is the one that Paul addresses in the next part of our reading. Let's go back to the text, and let's start reading at verse 19. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? But who are you, human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? He's talking about Israel there. What if he, Israel in the Old Testament when they always rebelled, what if he bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? And what if he did this, to make the riches of his glory known to the object of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory. Here he's talking about the Gentiles. Even us, whom he called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. This is the word of the Lord. All right, if, if, if Paul's words in the previous, question, uh, in the previous section... Raise some questions about fairness. Uh, I think you'll agree these words raise even more questions about fairness. Um, Paul's words in the last section made us wonder, you know, Paul, if it's all about God's hardening and God's choice, then then how can those who are not chosen be blamed? And Paul's answer is, uh, essentially, don't ask impertinent questions, right? Uh, He is the potter, we are the clay, The clay cannot talk back to the potter, so that is just the way it is. It's kind of a show-stopping argument. The interesting thing is though, even though Paul says that, it's not ours to question, he goes on and he does try to answer the question, right? And that's when he gets into those what ifs that I talked about last week. He starts to tread onto the the, the ground of holy mystery and he starts to ask these what if questions, speculating on what God might be doing. What if there are people, what if this is the Jews, who are objects of wrath created for destruction, whose disobedience just becomes a way of showing the glory of God ultimately through history? It's an argument something like this. What if is God writes the story of redemptive history, he writes in some characters who are essentially made to be foils to the goodness. Like in Star Wars, you have all those nameless stormtroopers who get shot, the bad guys. They are, in the arc of that story, objects of wrath created for destruction, right? To set off against the good guys. What if that's what God is doing, that's Paul's argument, as a way to show his glory? Or to use a painting metaphor, what if as God paints the story of creation history, there are some people who are painted as as shadows, as shading, and those shadows and shading are made darker to show off the light. Objects of wrath created to destruction. Now in Scripture, and in modern theology, we've learned to call that the doctrine of reprobation. People... Who have been chosen, hardened, in order to be foils for God's goodness. Now, this doctrine makes a lot of people uncomfortable, makes a lot of us uncomfortable. So let me make a few observations. First, and this is what I said last week, let me draw your attention to the fact that here Paul is saying, What if? He is not speaking certainty. He's not saying, thus saith the Lord. He's saying, what if? Maybe it's this way, perhaps. And so we can push back on Paul. We can ask questions about from Paul. He's not saying this with certainty. If I were sitting down with Paul at a coffee shop or at the cottage bar and we were talking theology together, I might have a few questions for Paul's what ifs here. I would say, Paul, I'm not sure that God just creates people for the purpose of shading and darkness. Are you sure that's really true? And I get what you're saying about Pharaoh. That's right, God hardened Pharaoh's heart, but Pharaoh was not an innocent. He was already someone who was set against God. And just because he did it with Pharaoh, does that mean that that's how he works with all people? I'm not so sure about that, let's talk about that more. Second thing to notice about these hard words, and this is really important. Paul speculates that maybe there are some people, and maybe this is happening to the Jews, that are objects of wrath created for destruction to show God's holy purposes. When he talks about objects of wrath created for destruction, is he talking about in eternity? Or is he talking about during the time on earth? Are that objects of wrath created for destruction? Will they experience the wrath and trouble eternally? In Romans 9, is he talking about eternity or is he talking about what's happening on earth while those people live? For Esau and Ishmael and Pharaoh, it's clear that they were objects of wrath intended for destruction insofar as they had their earthly story, right? For Pharaoh, he was an object of wrath created for destruction within the context of the story of the plagues. We know nothing about whether Pharaoh is in heaven or not. We know nothing about his eternal state, We can speculate, but the text doesn't speak to that, and we certainly don't know. When Paul talks about objects of wrath made for destruction, he's not talking about eternal things. He's talking about earthly things. And when we jump to say that God is creating people just for eternal destruction, we're making a category leap that the text does not, at least not here. A third qualifier to these hard words. Paul talks about person, Pharaoh, who is an object of wrath created for destruction. A person created to bear God's wrath. There's another person, besides Pharaoh, who fits that bill in Scripture. Can you think of who it is? Who else is an object of wrath created for destruction? Jesus. Jesus is an object of wrath created for destruction. Jesus came to this earth to bear the wrath of God. He was born to die. He was born to bear the entire weight of our sins. That was his intention. Now, of course, he's different than Pharaoh, but Jesus Christ himself was an object of wrath created for destruction who came to this world for our salvation. Who is it that will judge humanity at the end of time? Jesus. Jesus. The fact that he himself knows what it feels like to be an object of wrath created for destruction. What do you think that, how do you think that will affect the way he judges those people whose hearts were hardened and who were pushed away by God's choosing? I don't know. And it's pure speculation. But I think he will have a lot of understanding. That's the end of our passages it's written in your bulletins. But it's not the end of Paul's thinking on this matter. Paul does not stop wrestling with this matter in verse 24. And that's because I don't think he himself is satisfied with the answer that he comes to at 24. Like, oh, maybe Israel is an object of wrath, created for destruction, meant to show his glory. Maybe all my brothers and sisters are just doomed. He's just, that doesn't quite satisfy him. And if you read 9 through 11, you can follow this trail. He continues to wrestle with this issue through chapter 11. So let's, if you get got your Bibles open, please turn to chapter 11. And I am going to read starting at verse 11 and verse 12. Okay? And then I'll jump ahead to verse 25. Romans 11, 11 and 12. And he's still talking about the Jews and their ultimate faith. Again, I ask, did they, the Jews, stumble as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much richer will their full inclusion be? Now let's jump to verse 25, chapter 11, verse 25. I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them. When I take away their sins, As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies for your sake. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. For God's gifts and His call are irrevocable. Just as you, Gentiles, who were at once time disobedient to God, have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience... So they, now, so they too now have become disobedient in order that they too now may receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. This is the word of the Lord. So in the end... Paul started thinking about his friends, his schoolmates, who were cut off from God. In the end, as he comes to the end of the argument, in chapter 11, does Paul think that these, his friends, will ultimately be objects of wrath created for destruction? I think the answer to that is is pretty clearly no. Paul seems to think that the people of Israel are beloved on account of the patriarchs, for the sake of God's time with them. God's gifts and his call and his promises are irrevocable. Paul posits this kind of plan. He says, at one time, the Gentiles were all disobedient. And now they've all come in because Israel has turned away. And now Israel is going to become jealous of the Gentiles and the grace that they're receiving. And eventually, all Israel will be saved, he says. So all the old promises are fulfilled, says Paul. And so he's back to Romans 8 and to the celebration of, of God's promises that nothing can take us from the hands of God. Now, all Israel will be saved. What does that mean? Does all Israel mean every single one of the Jews will be saved? Or does Paul mean something different than that? That is a huge question. And theologians, of biblical scholars have debated it hotly. But I think what we can say with certainty here is that Paul thinks many, many, many of his fellow Jews who are currently not with him, will somehow come back. Whether it's all or just many or most, it's clear that some of those objects of wrath created for destruction will be brought back in in the way Paul sees God's promises. And then comes that last, most amazing verse, 32. Paul becomes suddenly expansive. His horizons open up. For God has bound everyone over to disobedience in order that he might have mercy on them all. He stops talking about Israel and he starts talking about everyone, about all. I don't know how many of you have seen the movie Shawshank Redemption, but in the movie there's a scene, it takes place in a prison where um, all the prisoners are in the yard and they're living their gray, miserable life. And Andy, the main character in the movie, he, he breaks into the warden's office and he transmits through the intercom la nozze de Figaro by Mozart this beautiful aria that is sung and so for the first time, instead of the warden's hard voice coming through the intercom this this glorious music, this aria sung by this woman fills the courtyard and the way it shows in the movie all the all the workers stop and they lift their head up from this gray existence and they sort of look to the heavens to this to these to this music that's coming from above them. And then the camera does something interesting. The camera sort of pulls up. And you don't just see the courtyard. All of a sudden you see more broadly. You see beyond the boundaries of the courtyard into the fields around the building. Paul does something like that in verse 32. God has imprisoned all in disobedience so that he might have mercy on them all. How big is that all? It's like the camera lifts from judah and goes across the jordan goes down into egypt where pharaoh used to hang out from there it expands goes down into africa where the bedouin fires burn and it lifts and it goes up into europe where the people are worshiping under the trees worshiping their false gods it goes to the shores of india and it goes to china It lifts, and you can see all the way across the ocean to the jungles of South America, to the plains where the buffalo are still running. Paul says all. For a second, we can see all the peoples of the world with their restless hearts huddled around their campfires on a thousand shores. How big is that all? Does Paul mean just some of the Jewish people or all of them? And Paul says, "All, how big is that all? I don't know how big it is. And I'm on the ground of holy mystery, and I'm never going to say how big it is. But I think Paul feels, and I share this feeling, that God's mercy is stronger and greater than we can imagine. And when this story is all done, we will be stunned at how wide and how deep and how strong his mercy reaches and how big that all is. Paul is so overwhelmed that he ends Romans 9 through 11 by singing his own aria to the allness of God. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who's been his counselor? Who's given a gift to him or to receive a gift in return? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the power of your grace and the power of your mercy. Lord, every day we're totally dependent on it. We pray for the strength of that mercy. Lord, we pray for the strength of that mercy for all the people we love who have strayed from you, who in their life right now feel to us like objects of wrath created for destruction, Lord. Our hearts break for them, our brothers, our sisters, our children. So, Lord, we pray that some of Paul's great vision here of the power of your grace may prove true in their life and in all our lives. As we wait for you, in your name we pray. Amen.: This has been the Grave CRC's sermon podcast. Thank you for watching.